Okay, distinguished guests, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's uh, lecture. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm the head of the European Institute here at the school. Uh, tonight's lecture is co-hosted by the European Institute, the Institute for Public Affairs, and the Darendorf Program here at the LSE. And that's because tonight's panel discussion essentially combines uh, two foci which are relevant to each of the hosts. One that's relevant to the LSE program on Brexit and the other which is relevant to the Darendorf program on the future of Europe. We read, of course, and hear from the press and the media uh, that the Brexit negotiations face a crucial couple of weeks. Indeed, the European Council, the summit meeting, on the 14th and 15th of December will decide whether, quote, sufficient progress has been made with the negotiations on the three priority issues before progressing uh, to the discussion of a possible future relationship between the UK and the, and the European uh, Union. At the same time, we know that the British government uh, says that it seeks a special or a bespoke deal to govern the relationship between the UK and the European Union after Brexit. That is a deal which is not currently matched by any other European uh, country. At the same time, Michel Barnier and other EU leaders have, saying, have been saying precisely the opposite, that they would expect the future relationship to be uh, close to one of the existing models, a kind of off-the-peg arrangements between the EU and the U UK. Amongst some of the pro-Brexit uh, politicians here in the UK, some have spoken favorably of the Norway uh, model. Perhaps rather more have spoken favorably of the Swiss option for the UK. The Labour opposition uh, may favor the Norwegian uh, model as it, would keep the European, uh, as it would keep the UK in the single European uh, market. Others look to the Swiss model precisely because it involves a more varied arrangement given that I think Switzerland currently has something like 127 different agreements with the EU, it could be made to be more flexible in the UK case. So tonight we can explore what these different models may mean to bring some substance to the debate. And we've invited three academics, each of whom have written extensively on the European Union's relations with other European countries. And in, the, in their work, they've raised what I think are some of the most important issues that the UK might have to face in the post-Brexit uh, period. Personally, what I've drawn from their work is the idea that European states outside the European Union face a version of what Danny Roddick uh, might refer to as his trilemma in international political economy. Danny Roddick has referred to a trilemma which I think can be adapted in this particular case. That is the challenge for any individual country of simultaneously satisfying three different objectives. Democracy, sovereignty, and openness to the global economic order. 
Norway and Switzerland, for example, have access, different kinds of access to the EU's market, but as such, they appear, appear to have limited discretion at home over applying the EU's regulations and laws. And as such, at home, there has been some domestic uh, public backlash uh, because of the lack of discretion and lack of autonomy. In any event, both the Norwegian and the Swiss model seem to show the power of the European Union to establish a structured relationship with other European states. And perhaps it's more clear that the relations with Norway and Switzerland satisfy EU interests uh, rather than perhaps the interests of outside, uh, outside states. In any event, we have much to discuss uh, this evening. So let me introduce our three speakers. Siglinda uh, Gostol is Director of the Department of the European Union International Relations and Diplomacy Studies at the College of Europe in Bruges. She's been a full professor in Bruges since 2005. Previously, she's held posts at Humboldt University, the Liechtenstein uh, Institute in Bendem, and at Harvard uh, University. She's written extensively on the different kinds of relationships the European Union has with other European countries. And she will therefore um, begin our presentations this evening talking about the diversity of the type of relations that the European Union has with other European states. Our sec second speaker will be Eric Erickson, who's Professor of Political Science at the University of Oslo. He's also Director of ARENA, which is a well-known and highly regarded multidisciplinary center for the study of the evolving European political order. Eric has held a number of positions, and he serves on a number of academic editorial boards. He's currently the research director of the project Integration and Division Towards a Segmented Europe? Question mark. In 2015, he co-edited a very topical volume, The European Union's Non-Members, Independence Under Hegemony? Question mark. And in fact, reading that volume uh, led me to propose tonight's panel. Uh, I thought it would be uh, very opportune for us to discuss some of the issues raised. So Eric will speak second and discuss the experience specifically of Norway. And then last but uh, certainly not least, Jochen Blatter is Professor of Political Science at the University of Lucerne in Switzerland. He's held positions in many different countries, including in Berlin, the European, Univers European University Institute, in Canberra, and Harvard. His research has covered a variety of fields, uh, and in particular uh, paid attention to the EU's democratic deficit, the concepts of transnational citizenship, and the de-bordering of nation states. Uh, Joachim will speak on the Swiss uh, case. So each of our speakers will speak for a maximum of 15 minutes, uh, so that will leave us with plenty of time for discussion uh, afterwards. And uh, as you can see, you can follow tonight's discussion uh, with Twitter. There's a hashtag, hashtag LSE Brexit. Uh, please do uh, comment on the discussion. Uh, the event is also being recorded, so uh, shortly you'll be able to download the recording of the discussion tonight uh, as well. But that's enough from me. Let's begin the uh, discussion 
and I'm going to uh, invite you to uh, welcome Siglinda Gostol to start the discussion. Okay, thank you very much for the invitation, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. So I have been asked to give a, kind of an overview a little bit by way of introduction to tonight's topic, and you can see the questions here. So which off-the-shelf models are out there that the UK could draw inspiration from? Even though, the, of course, the government has already said, and we have just been reminded that the UK wants a bespoke arrangement and not take a model that is already established, but nevertheless, it can be very instructive to look at them uh, for the future. So I'm not focusing on the transition period, but on the future partnership with the European Union. Now, just to remind ourselves, what are the so-called red lines of the British side and the EU side? You're probably very well familiar with them. The UK government wants the greatest possible access to the single market to keep it as much as possible, conduct an independent trade policy, contain immigration from Europe and take back control of laws, including the interpretation thereof, meaning get away from the European Court of Justice. The EU, on the other hand, has well-established red lines since many, many years, that, and I think I will come back to that when we look at the different models, because other countries have been dealing with the very same red lines in the past. So there's always a priority for EU integration and deepening EU integration, and a protection of the autonomy of the EU legal order and its decision-making procedures. A well-known example for it is the European Economic Area when it was negotiated to try to establish a joint EA court. It was negotiated, it was in the agreement, and the European Court of Justice killed it off so, <laughs> um, for that very same reason. Then very important, a balance of benefits and obligations. So it's always about package deals. So that does not necessarily mean all the four freedoms of the single market, free movement of persons, capital, uh, service, and goods, it can be less. It all depends on the ambitions, but it has to be a balance. That's how Switzerland, for example, had to accept free movement of persons in order to get as much as possible access to the single market. Turkey doesn't. It, doesn't have, it has a less ambitious uh, customs union, a partial customs union, for example. Uh, then the core principle of non-discrimination, very important also for the free movement of persons, and avoid setting a precedent. So that's very important as well. Now, as to take away already the, the, my main argument is if you look at these red lines and you compare them, in my view, the only possible option is a hard Brexit that comes with a free trade agreement in whatever form, and there, are, there is some flexibility on the form that it could take. Um, so I just want to give you in a nutshell a bit of an overview of the existing model, starting with the European Economic Area that Eric will talk about in the corner, in the bottom right corner. So it's a broad, multilateral, deep integration with a dynamic evolvement of the acquis communautaire, the EU law. So the EFTA countries and the European Union have each their pillar, EFTA, European Free Trade Association, of which, by the way, the UK was a founding member in 1960, <laughs> have established sort of mirror institutions um, like they have in the European Union. So there's the Commission, there's the ESA, EFTA Surveillance Authority. Uh, there's the European Court of Justice, there's an EFTA Court of Justice. They have a joint parliamentary body and a joint council and so on. So the EFTA countries are basically copy-pasting a lot of the acquis, whatever is relevant to their single market coverage, 
into their own national legislation. So in a nutshell, but we can come back uh, with questions uh, in, uh, in the discussion maybe. So that's the most far-reaching, it's the benchmark model. Okay. That's, uh, and many other third countries have been referring to the EEA itself over the years. Now we do have Switzerland, which has a bilateral relation and based on sectoral agreements, but the cumulative effect, having so many, and it was just said 127 of which about 100 are secondary and 20, 27 are really main agreements, the cumulative effect is that it has something like a European economic area light, but without the whole decision-making participation, which is already very limited in the EA. It's even more limited for Switzerland. It's mainly based on equivalence of laws, with two exceptions, the association to the Dublin-Schengen area and the air transport uh, agreement. There, Switzerland is accepting the EU law, and it also has to deal with uh, the case law of the European Court of Justice and so on. So... Um, then we have the Turkish Partial Customs Union since the 90s, 1996. Um, of course, this was agreed in view of accession of the country, which is now more or less off the table. So in the case of Turkey, it's free movement of goods, not even all goods, just industrial goods and some processed agricultural goods. Not agriculture, no free movement of persons, no services. So it's rather limited, but it means uh, it has other implications that we will come back to. Then just for reference, the so-called small-sized States, I call it the absorption model. So that's Andorra, San Marino, Monaco. They have been in the customs territory of the European Union since the 90s as well. And they have no say whatsoever, to cut it short. Uh, and finally, we have the European neighborhood policy, hub and spoke model. The hub is the Brussels, and then spokes go to the 16 uh, different ENP countries. It's the younger policy. It's established in 2004 in the framework of the Eastern enlargement of the European Union. And there we have a few, very few, uh, of the countries that are participating in the policy that are aligning and taking over to parts of the agricultural but uh, we'll come back to that maybe. Because, <laughs> that's one of the other main points I want to make, this is all in flux. So all these countries are negotiating with the European Union right now. So Brexit is not the only negotiation out there. We have uh, the Swiss who are negotiating an institutional umbrella agreement with the European Union because they got stuck. The EU clearly said in 2010, you're not going to give you more access to the single market without solving the institutional questions. There's no way. Okay? And then the European neighborhood policy countries, some of them have DCFTAs, deep and comprehensive free trade agreements, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, and then in the south we have uh, Tunisia and Morocco negotiating them for the moment. So they are partly taking over that key EU law without having a say as well. And then we have the Turkish Customs Union, a lot of frustration, uh, and they're actually waiting to adopt the mandate to modernize the Turkish Customs Union as an alternative to accession because accession negotiations got stuck. And even the small countries the three of them are currently negotiating an association with the EU to improve their own situation, and they have been asked to do it as a group, even though they're very different. The three of them have to negotiate together, and they're going for an association either bilateral or maybe even multilateral. I don't think so, but we'll see. Just for reference, there are also narrow sectoral communities, but we're not going to talk to them, like energy community, European Common Aviation Area. They're also based on the EU law. Okay. 
Now, uh, what I want to say with this very brief overview, um, there is currently a shift since a couple of years towards broader and more dynamic forms of integration and cooperation with the European Union because one of the central principles is market homogeneity. If you want to participate in the single market, like the EU member states do and some of the neighbors do, the market has to be homogeneous. It means you have to follow the same rules and you have to even follow the same interpretation of those rules and the rules are made by the European Union. Okay? So there's, as a result, a kind of trade-off <coughs> for third countries, which are not in the EU, uh, between having access to the single market you know, full access, partial access, you, you have to choose, depending on the ambition, what kind of gap you accept or not. On the one hand, on the other hand, sovereignty issues or what I would call a participatory gap. And this gap in institutional terms comes with four uh, features, if you like. How do countries adapt to the very dynamic, evolving, EU law? How do they follow EU rules, regulations, right? Uh, how are these then surveyed, monitored? Is there an independent surveillance of how these rules are applied? How they are enforced? Is there a court or, you know, what is the enforcement mechanism in place? And finally, what is the multilateral, bilateral dispute settlement mechanism in case of problems? So they all face the same challenges to varying degrees. I think that's very important uh, to keep in mind. I could then maybe... Uh, if we still have a few minutes, well, okay. Just uh, highlight a few points from each of these models uh, very briefly, and maybe we can, can come back to it uh, in the discussion. Now, the Turkish model, this partial customs union, there was also discussion in the UK, should the UK or should Northern Ireland stay in the customs union or parts of the customs union? Uh, Turkey at the moment um, faces a big issue because it was supposed to be a temporary solution only until it becomes a full member. And that's whenever the EU concludes a trade agreement with Korea or TTIP, if, if, if it ever happened, but it hasn't, or Canada, you know. There are many trade agreements. It means that the Turkish economy has to face goods coming into free circulation also on its territory, but there's no reciprocity. So Turkish goods cannot be sold on the same conditions in Korea, Canada, or whatever. There is no reciprocity. So Turkey basically has to take over the rules that are relevant for the customs union from the EU, the common external tariff and other things, but it has no right to sell its goods on the same conditions because it's not a member of the EU. So it faces the competition, but it doesn't have the rights reciprocally it would have to negotiate its own free trade agreements with Korea and Canada and so on. It has been trying it, but as you can imagine, it was difficult and the EU is very active. Um, there are also many issues when it comes to case law, consultation of Turkish experts whenever relevant rules are discussed. It's foreseen. It doesn't work in practice very well, I have to say, on both sides. So... Um, the Turkish courts are also supposed to follow the case law of the ECJ and so on. Uh, there have been many issues. So the Norwegian model, I think Eric's going to um, talk about it a lot. Just one point maybe, decision shaping, what does it mean, is very important in the EA context. It means EFTA experts can 
participate in shaping new rules that will apply to them, but not in decision-making, because they're not in the European Parliament, they're not in the Council of the EU, but they can participate in an expert level. They're consulted, they can give input, and it's a lot of information-gathering lobbying rather than take shaping decisions. So. Um, and they have built up their own institutions, as I said before. Maybe two words on Liechtenstein, which is where I come from, <laughs> which is an EFTA country. There have been two elements which have been in the Brexit debate uh, with reference to Liechtenstein, and that's the parallel marketability of goods, very fancy, uh, because Liechtenstein is in the customs union with Switzerland. Switzerland is not in the European economic area. So how can you be in the customs union with a country and you know, in a free trade area with the EU? It was like squaring the circle in, the, in 1992-94. And the solution they found, very innovative, is that in Liechtenstein, two legal systems apply at the same time. So if there are diverging rules on goods, and we're only talking about goods, um, we have EU laws and Swiss laws applying at the same time on the same territory, even if they're different. And then Lindsay has to make sure that goods that are not supposed to go into the other area, even though there's no border, it has to, well, it had to build up um, national market surveillance authorities to make sure that there is no deflection of these goods. Now, it works because Liechtenstein is tiny. It has 160 square kilometers. I think it's about 62 square miles or something like that. I'm not sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the second thing is maybe a special solution for free movement of persons, um, which is not an opt-out. I can maybe explain it later because we're running out of time. It's not an opt-out, but it has to do also with the tiny territory and the very high share of foreigners in the resident population, which is about one-third of the population living there, and about 60% of the workforce are foreigners. So it's a very complex, uh, it's not a, an exception, it's sort of an institutionalized review clause that comes close to an exception. I can explain it later, maybe. Just to um, sum it up, Switzerland, we'll talk about it differently. And finally, the Canadian model, or Ukrainian model, or whatever you want to call it, NFTA, a free trade agreement, how comprehensive or not that will be up to the negotiations. Of course, this will meet some of the, the red lines of the British government, have a known trade policy, no free movement of persons, but it also comes with very limited access to the single market unless they go a bit further. That's what Ukraine did in the DCFTA, in the European Neighborhood Policy, which is, again, accepting parts of the acquis communautaire and aligning to it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. But I'm, I think it came too late, in a sense. We, should, we, 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 we wrote this book on uh, independence and the hegemony in, uh, 19, in 2015 to warn you against, uh, against this, what has happened here. So you should have invited us a, 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 two years ago. But, uh, but, so I don't know what we have to, 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 uh, to say, but the book was not a bestseller either. either. But... Uh, but uh, at least we had this uh, idea of um, independence and the hegemony, and this is this kind of thinking that you, you, you live in, uh, in, uh, in splendid uh, serenity, if not isolation, and in splendid serenity, and, and then you, when you see what is happening, you are 
you see, you see some, something quite different. But uh, it was, uh, the point was, uh, was, in fact, that it was not only we who, uh, who, who warned who warned you, or, or, or warned the, the British, but also the Norwegian um, Prime Minister said to you that um, she warned against it and said, you would hate it. Don't do it. You would hate it. There was a Norwegian Prime Minister who said that. So, so why, why, why is that so? Why did this, what, what, did, what, what is at stake here? After all, the Norwegian relationship with the EU has been an economic success. We are going sp splendidly in, 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 in economic terms. But the problem is political. It has to do with being a kind of um, a, a, a self uh, a, a, a self-ruled person or, or, or being a political subject here, not an object. And I think this is what is ringing home also in this, in this British debate. It is this kind of thing being, being thought of being, being um, governed by someone else. And Norwegian tried to, to um, not, not to be uh, governed by, by ourselves, but have ended up in the worst possible situation. Because, because these agreements, or this being an outsider, when you are dependent on the, on the EU, means also that you, uh, that you cannot escape it. So, 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 and, and this book that we, that we wrote on the associated non-members showed exactly this, that these things that happen in, in these countries are... Basically, the same things that happen in the um, in the uh, in the EU countries themselves, they have they, they, there is an increasing increasingly closely associated to they are increasingly um, closely associated associated to a constantly changing and integrating entity over which they have no formal say. And this goes for 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 for, for Switzerland and for these uh, for these countries under the EAA agreement, which we analyzed in that uh, in that book so um, um, it's a political tragedy this is the this is the, this is the, this is the, the, the fact here the Norway if you think, think about Norway this is a, a, a um, they have these same arguments that, that we have seen here we should uh, we should be against uh, EU membership because, of, uh, because we should govern ourselves. It's also a right to self-determination, to democracy, sovereignty. But after that one, that was a decision in 1994. Every government, who, whoever many opponents to EU membership was part of that government, they have brought Norway closely, closer and closer into, into the union. So we have this EAA agreement, which you have seen was into, but we have also a lot of other parallel agreements that have been signed. So when I go to, 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 to London from Norway, I go out of um, Schengen and into the EU for, for, for the moment. You see, we are a member of Schengen, we are a member of, of Dublin, the, the asylum and, and police cooperation. Norway, Norway even puts troops under... And uh, at, at the disposal of EU's, EU's uh, battle groups. So we try, Norway have tried all the time afterwards to be as closely uh, associated with the EU as possible, as close as possible relationships. And as, as you see here, about three-fourths of all the legislation, legislation that applies to the, EU, to, um, to the member states applies also to the EU. So why on earth aren't you a member? This is what people would, would, would ask us, because then you could have a say. So, and of course, uh, um, we could have a, a, a say. This is um, 
but, uh, but, uh, but what happened also in Norway was that after the membership, after that uh, referendum, the government had took a kind of responsible uh, position. We cannot afford to be outside of the single market, even though the market was not like it is to today. We cannot afford it. This is not a responsible act for, of us. So we respect the, 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 the uh, referendum by, uh, by being, not being a formal member, but being a member of, uh, of this EAA agreement that we have already um, uh, negotiated. And it was a wonderful agreement because there was a lot of, of countries involved in negotiating it, and the other, other countries went into the, uh, into the EU, and Norway, was, uh, Norway and Liechtenstein and, and Iceland and Switzerland was not. Switzerland voted no to the EAA agreement and have established all these uh, uh, bilateral agreements. So the, the point is, uh, this is a very dynamic and, uh, and uh, expansive agreement, this EAA agreement. That means that we take on board all legislations that are relevant for the single, single market. And it is very difficult to, to sort out what is not relevant for the single market and, and what is relevant. So there is an, a, an enormous corpus of legislation coming in. And, uh, and this uh, gives us access to the single market and this is a basic uh, basis for a kind of the success that we have had in economic terms. We have the accept of the, these uh, four freedoms that are so famous, including the free movement, the whole regulatory uh, regime, the abolition of, of uh, all barriers to uh, trade and price uh, competition. So, so this is a, a, um, a, um, an entity that is very, I think it is very important. I think one of the things that has been hard to, to, to sell at home, but also in, in, in Britain, is this understanding of the, of the EU as not, a, not merely a, 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 common, a common market or a free trade area, but it is a, 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 a single market. And it is a single market that is, that is very different from, from a, 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 a free trade area. It comes with all these regulations, all these standards, all these... Uh, um, um, uh, these specifications that are needed for being able to trade in, in to, to, to trade with, with each, each other, and you have a a, a system on uh, at top of this to to see that things are going correctly. So it is not bilateral in this sense that the states can have can can, uh, can um, uh, uh, just trade with one another. No, they have to, to in a way to trade with the whole with the whole Europe. And of course, it is an enormous market, 500 millions. Who would not be part of that market? So, so this is a, a, a common good. This is a common good that is established in Europe, and, uh, and it comes with a lot of standards that must be respected in order to be, be involved in this. And this, I think, is very important that, that, it, it, that, that, that there is an understanding on, 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 on what, 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 what the entity is. Uh, the cost, the costs, what are the costs in a sense? The costs are, in a way, what I call dominance and hegemony. The, um, the EEA countries are not represented in the decision-making institutions in the EU and cannot accept direct decisions by the Commission or the European Court of Justice. The EAA agreement has, therefore, established an EAA uh, EFTA bodies to, ma to match the ones in the EU, often referred to as the two-pillar uh, EAA structure. So the joint EAA bodies bind the two pillars together, EU and, 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 and the countries, 
And the most, most important body is the EAA committee, which is responsible for amending the relevant legal acts, acts from the EU to the EU law. So in this sense, you respect in a way the kind of, a kind of sovereignty uh, uh, idea here, that because these, these, binding, these legal acts, they are then adopted by national governments in of the EAA country, countries. So this is, looks nice on the, on the paper. The problem is that there is no, no way of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of saying no. <laughs> so why, why, why do we need all this kind of apparatus and, and this, and this decision-making system here that gives a kind of, of, uh, of uh, illusion of a kind of sovereignty? It's because you cannot say no. If you say no, then you will put the whole arrangement to, at, at, at risk. You can just say, okay, if you don't abide by these laws, we can, you cannot be a member here and we can abolish it. So, and there is, a kind of, there is no veto right. There is a kind of reservation uh, clause, but that means also that the other countries must also agree to this. So it does not only Norway, but you have to agree with, the, the, with Liechtenstein and, uh, and, 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 and Switzerland. So this right to reservation has never been used. So now we have... 26 years or 27 years of being under this EAA agreement, and we have taken in all these regu regu regulations, all these directives, and no, no opposition, no, no. And the, and the thing is that it need not go against the recent interest. This is not what I'm saying. They are pretty good, most of these regulations. So, so but we, we have, there is no, uh, no point in picking up a debate on this because you know that you cannot, you cannot have any, anything to say about it. So this is what I mean by a political disaster. It is, it is, it is a kind of, um, it, is, it is dependence. And, and to be dependent on, on the will, even the good will of others, that is not freedom, that is the dominance. So, so this is why we use these kind of harsh, harsh languages there, because it is, it is arbitrariness from the point of view of the Norwegian uh, uh, people. They have not been involved in making these decisions. Siglinda tries to, to make, a, make a, a plea for, for the lobbying thing, and, you, and there is a shaping of decisions in, in before. Yeah, yeah, they have, but that is, uh, that is an empirical question. We have not seen much of it, and, and of course it is, it is like you have to, to, to run after people when they come up for meetings and try to, to, to sneak a document into their hands and try to, to, uh, to, uh, to, um, to, uh, um, to have a kind of influence by not, but it is, Undignified. It is not what we should uh, what we should do. I say, and and it is. Th that's why also the prime minister say she hates it. She 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 does not like it. She is not recognized as a citizen, as a as a European political political uh, actor on par with these others. But we are dependent on them. So what kind of what kind of self self respect comes out of this? So this is this is in a way the kind of psychological and, and, and political problem that we are faced with. We are second-rate citizens in 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 Europe. So, and the the, the funny things do do I have more? Yeah, yeah. Because the the, fun, the funny thing here is not that I say that the EU is a hegemon. This is not my point. The point is that when you have that when 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 you have established these kinds of um, of agreements. Then you 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 pose EU as a hegemon because it is it is it, it must it, it acts like one or it, it is it is seen as one so it so it is it is a kind of effect of the structural arrangement that we have established that the EU has has become a, a kind of hegemon and this is this is a, a profound irony 
profound irony in the, in the, in the, in the in face of the fact that the idea about the EU, European integration was to abolish hegemony, to abolish this kind of rivalry between the states and also in a way abolish the, the, the diplomacy as, as a way of dealing with things between, between states. So, so it is in a way also undermining the whole European integration process, process that is based on the equal, equal rights for, 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 for all, and, and, and all the members sit around the, pay, the table, all of them in the same place. And that was a good thing about the, the Schuman Pact in, 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 in comparison with the Versailles Treaty. You see how Germany was treated in the Versailles Treaty. Schuman Pact said, no, 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 we don't do it like we did in 1918 or 19 or whatever it came out. We do it by, by putting all on the, equal, on the equal footing around the table so that nobody can afterwards come and say that we were mistreated in this process. So this is what the, what the EU has been, uh, has been um, evolving and by, by, by doing these kinds of, um, of, of things you are, uh, you are, uh, you are um, uh, undermining your own uh, sovereignty in, in a way. Sovereignty is not sovereignty alone. Sovereignty is something that you have to, to exert together with others in order to get something done in, in this world. So, so, the, so dominance emerges because of asymmetric uh, power relations at, at least. At the one hand, there is no parity of power that would render the use of threats and countermeasures credible under, credible under international law. This is what the international relations guys are so fond of. So, but but that, the, the conditions for, 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 for this kind of, of game is not, is not in place by, by the arrangement as it is because the EU can just destroy it in, in the... On the other hand, there is no possibilities for participation in systems of joint decision making that would allow associated states to wield influence or demand justifications under EU law. So both, both tracks are, are, we are ex ex excluded from. So that's why we are, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, a deep democratic problem in, uh, in this, with these arrangements and this EAA agreement. And I'm not so sure that the others fear pretty better, pretty much better. Thank you. Okay, now I got it. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, in my introductory words, I want, want to make three points. First, I would like to uh, make the argument that uh, Britain cannot uh, imitate the Swiss model of uh, sectoral bilateralism because um, it would mean something totally different given the different uh, systems uh, of government and democracy in the two countries. That's my first point. My second point, uh, Britain should not imitate the Swiss model of sectoral bilateralism because bilateralism does not solve the major democratic problems uh, in a century that is characterized by massive uh, transboundary flows and interdependencies. And third, Britain and Swiss might join forces, actually, uh, in order to think about um, new ways of uh, organizing transnational governance and democracy based on their common aversion against um, uh, external judges. I will come back to this third point at the end. Uh, of my. 
But I would like to start to remind you of uh, the peculiarities of the Swiss uh, model. Yeah. Um, Switzerland, in Switzerland, uh, all, you all know, uh, direct democracy has a strong, strong, is a stronghold of uh, direct democracy, and uh, di direct democratic uh, features are not just uh, used when uh, a government leader uh, deems it appropriate for him, but it, it's strongly entrenched in the tradition in the system. People have a, a veto right uh, in, with the referendum, and they have uh, the initiative right to set up issues on uh, the agenda, and they use it widely. Uh, less known is the implication for a representative democracy. You might not know um, that um, in, when there is an election, usually the government does not change. Yeah, since uh, the end of the 1950s, uh, we have the magic formula. Uh, the government is always consistent of the same parties. Um, and so after an election, there is no governmental change. In, uh, and in consequence, um, the, the participation rate in uh, elections is below 50%. Yeah, because the people have another, another um, instrument to, uh, to have a say later on, not just in elections. Um, that is the first important thing. The second important thing you should remember uh, that not only Liechtenstein is tiny, but uh, Switzerland overall is uh, with 8 million uh, inhabitants not so tiny, but it, it's uh, very decentralized. Um, and it has still, it has 28 cantons, and these cantons has a lot of, have a lot of competences and power. They are still the strongest level of government. Uh, and the, these cantons are very different. Uh, the biggest canton of Zurich has one, one and a half million inhabitants, but the smallest one, uh, Appenzell Innerroden, has just 15,000 inhabitants. But the full competences, um, and I come back to this, I just mentioned these two things in order to make clear um, that um, Membership or bilateralism does not mean the same thing for such a democracy as it would mean for a representative kind of democracy as it is in Britain. Um, the internal features of the Swiss government and democracy shape the relations towards the external world and towards the European Union. In economic terms, Switzerland is one of the most integrated com uh, countries in the European common market but its political majority always resisted any political integration in multilateral institutions. Instead, it opted for what is called sectoral bilateralism. You have heard already about it. Usually this term refers to the sec uh, 16 bilateral agreements which were signed at the turn of the millennium and which mostly secure Swiss access to the common European market, but also the free movement of people and the Swiss participation in the Schengen and Dublin agreements. Nevertheless, these latest agreements represent only the tip of the iceberg, uh, and overall, sectoral bilateralism encompasses more than 120 bilateral agreements. We heard it already. Switzerland always avoided any supranational judicialization. That's a very po important point in all these treaties, which means that conflict resolution does not involve any court, and it takes place in the form of intergovernmental negotiations in bilateral committees. Nevertheless, there is one important clause in the cluster of bilateral agreements uh, that were signed in 1999 that limits the leeway of Switzerland dramatically. The so-called guillotine clause stipulated that if a party determines one agreement, uh, 
The other party has the right to resign all other, all other agreements. And um, just the last um, two or three years, it became clear what this means. You might know that the Swiss people have uh, said, uh, accepted um, an initiative of the Swiss People's Party uh, which against the mass immigration. Yeah? With a tiny majority of the Swiss people accepted this uh, initiative, and, uh, de um, which demanded that the Swiss government uh, set strong immigration uh, restrictions. Um, three years ago. Now, this summer, the federal, uh, the government or the parliament um, um, legislated the law to implement this uh, verdict of the people, and they do, did it in the, such a way that they secured um, that these guillotine call, uh, clause will not be activated by the European Union, um, and by thereby basically. Uh, Ignoring the verdict of the of the people, the performa implemented uh, the so-called anti-migration initiative, but de facto they were, take, were taking care that uh, no um, strong um, uh, restrictions are taking place, so that the EU is was satisfied with uh, the overall result. This way, overall. Uh, in, back, in practice, sexual bilateralism comes down to the following two main features. In many policy fields, Switzerland follows the regulatory lead of the European Union and applies similar rules in a procedure that is called autonomer Nachvollzug. Yeah, it means that you, um, uh, you implement uh, similar rules as uh, were implemented in the European Union. But in crucial fields, like taxation and agriculture, though so Switzerland has avoided any binding agreements. This formal autonomy has allowed Switzerland to defend its distinct policies, uh, low taxation and regulation, strong protection and subsidies in uh, agriculture, even when the EU tried hard to force Switzerland to abandon its egocentric policies. From a structural point of view, these features replicate the relationships among the Swiss cantons on a higher level. Within the Swiss Federation, it is quite common that smaller cantons simply imitate and adjust to the policies of the larger cantons uh, in many respects. But in crucial fields like taxation, they pursue a decidedly distinct strategy. And it is within the Swiss Federation, um, as it is within, within the Swiss Federation, it's also with the Swiss relationship to the EU. Most Swiss prefer to have a lot of influence in some crucial policy fields, like taxation, in comparison to have a little influence in all policy fields. Therefore, those who argue that EU membership would bring them representation and a vote within the decision-making institutions of the European Union have never been able to sway the majority of the Swiss. This is all the more the case because EU membership would imply a massive shift from the traditional republican form of democracy with strong elements of direct democracy towards a more liberal and representative form of democracy. But Great Britain now is such a liberal and representative uh, form of democracy. In consequence, for Britain, sexual bilateralism represents a much less attractive uh, way to deal with the EU than for Switzerland. For Great Britain, a much larger country with an imperial tradition, it, it is much harder to accept a relationship in which you usually accept and implement what others have decided on. Given its own understanding as a leading country in the world and given its entrenched reliance on a representative form of democracy, the gained autonomy in important fields like taxation or trade is much able to compensate for the loss of representation and voting power in all other policy fields within the EU institutions. 
This is my, well, my argument why uh, Britain cannot imitate Swiss uh, bilateralism. Now I get to the point that I argue uh, Swiss uh, Britain should not imitate uh, bilateralism. Two main points. I want to use the Swiss experience for making the argument that bilateralism does not represent a model for dealing with cross-border flows and policy interdependencies that solves the fundamental problems of democratic self-determination in the 21st century. First, I will argue that it does not secure national sovereignty in any meaningful way. Second, I will point to the fact that bilateralism has not been able to avoid the perceived disconnection between the political elite and the wider population and therefore provides no proper answer to populism. First, according to Philippe Petit, the leading proponent of a neo-republican understanding of democracy, in the current world, nation-states face three potential sources of domination. First, powerful states. Second, resourceful private actors like multinational corporations or uh, investors. Third, international organizations. The Swiss traditionally have done everything not to be dominated by an international organization and hesitated to join all international organizations, at least all political international organizations. This aversion, though, um, against any influence from international organizations has come at the expense of becoming very dependent on fulfilling the demands of multinational corporations and capital holders. Furthermore, it has made Switzerland very vulnerable to threats uttered by powerful states like the United States. The latter aspect showed up most, recent, uh, most clearly a few years ago when the U.S. authorities used the threat against the largest Swiss bank to, uh, in order to crack the famous Swiss banking secrecy. In this situation, the Swiss realized what it means to have no allies in a conflict with a global hegemon. But the choice of, by the political elite of Switzerland to cater to the demands of multinational corporations and capital holders and to shy away from joining forces with the political leaders of other democratic states for regulating and taxing these private actors has paid off so far in economic terms. For example, Swiss banks still manage about one-fourth of the global offshore wealth. Just one example, I could uh, um, show you some other examples. But nevertheless, this strategy has reduced the political leeway of the Swiss people in a similar way as it is the case with the political leeway of nations that are members of the European Union. When the OECD, backed up by the G20, put pressure on Switzerland to get rid of cantonal taxation rules uh, that contained massive discounts for multinational corporations, the Swiss government reacted by introducing a bill that would have forced the cantons to provide not only the multinationals, but all corporations with very low tax rates. The people this summer rejected this bill in a referendum, not at least because they saw what happens when not just the very small cantons like Zug, which have done uh, this uh, for decades now, pursue a strategy of very low corporate taxation, but also larger cantons. My home canton, for example, Lucerne, which is a larger one, reduced its corporate tax rate to 10% a few years ago in order to keep up with the tax policies of the many small cantons in its neighborhood. Huge budget deficits have been the result since the newly attracted corporations do not make up for the reduced public income from the established corporations. Despite the fact that the economy is thriving, the cantonal government has to... Sorry... <laughs> has to introduce every year since a few five years now uh, new cost-cutting programs. On the national level, 
a new corporate tax bill is currently worked out by the federal government, and it looks like the, it will differ only slightly from the one that the people rejected. This is because, according to a widely held opinion, there is no alternative uh, to low corporate taxation in a situation in which the international community is not tolerating the older discriminatory instruments anymore. The dependency of Switzerland on multinational corporations makes an increase in, in taxation so risky that most political and commentators, it has become unthinkable. I presented this story deliberately in such a way in order to highlight the parallels to situation in which the population of an EU member state refused to accept and implement EU decisions, as the Irish, Danish, or Dutch people did. After my, minor adjustment, uh, adjustments, the policies have been accepted and implemented anyway. The same is going on to be the case in Switzerland, with the difference that in the field of taxation, the Swiss do only superficially obey to the will of the international community. But de facto, they follow much more the demands of the multinational corporations. Being a non-member of the EU does not mean to have more sovereignty. It means that you follow more or less voluntarily the demands of a different kind of international actor. Second point. One of the main reasons for the rise of populism uh, all across Europe on for, and for the support of the Leave campaign in Britain is the widespread perception that the political elites have become detached from the people. Furthermore, it is usually presumed that the EU with its intergovernmental and supranational forms of policy making strongly contributes to this development. The Swiss example shows that bilateralism does not prevent the emerging disconnect between political elite and ordinary people. In bilateral systems of international relations, the political interactions between actors within the domestic arena and actors from outside are taken primarily uh, in the form of intergovernmental uh, negotiations, whereas in multilateral and in supranational systems like the EU, further points of contact emerge on the level of civil society and intermediary organizations like parties and interest organizations. In consequences within the domestic arena and debates, it is almost only the government in the Swiss case now that brings in the perspective of the external others when it tries to justify negotiated compromises. This constellation made uh, the last 20 years and makes currently it easy for the billionaire um, Christoph Blocher and his daughter, who is now in, in the federal uh, parliament, to claim that the Swiss government is selling Switzerland to the Eurocrats. Um, the structurally induced accusation that the members of the federal government are traitors are very erosive for the Swiss democracy since traditionally the members of the federal government have been the status of trustees. Yeah, this means despite the fact that uh, bilateralism and the resulting features of autonomous Nafotsu can be seen as reproducing the traditional form of governance and democracy in a very particular country, Bilateralism also undermines one of the cultu cultural fundamentals of Swiss democracy, the perceived identity between the political elite and the wider population. I'm not sure whether Great Britain has something to lose in this respect. The aggressive media system, system in the, uh, Great Britain has already led to a situation in which trust in government is low. But I'm sure that bilateralism will not help to bridge the gap between political elites and the wider population. So I get to my last point. Um, well, I want to make um, the argument that we, that Swiss and the Brits uh, nevertheless could join uh, forces in some respect. Despite the many differences between the British and the Swiss forms of democracy, there is one aspect the British and the Swiss very much agree on. The skepticism against the legalistic form of rule 
and the aversion against foreign judges. Currently, the EU follows uh, the legalistic idea that transnational flows and interdependencies should be regulated primarily by joint systems of international or European law, um, implying that judges have the last word in political conflicts. Both Switzerland and Great Britain do not share the prioritization of the rule of law over the rule of the people that has its roots in the Roman Empire and that shapes especially the German understanding of democracy and the German stance to European integration. The Swiss and the British give the people or the representatives of the people in the parliament or with the last words in political conflicts. In consequence, the British and the Swiss could join forces in order to use the current negotiations with the EU for spreading new innovative ideas on how to deal democratically with the world of massive cross-border flows and interdependencies. One of those ideas is to develop a transnational voting scheme in which states reserve a limited number of seats in their national parliaments for representatives of other nations, as currently some countries like Italy or France do it for their external citizens. If elected representatives of other nations would have a voice and a conditional vote in national parliaments, the external effects of national policies and the consequences of policy interdependencies would be debated in those political fora that are much better embedded in the structures and processes of democratic will formation and decision making than it is currently the case with, inter with intergovernmental summits and the EU parliament. Such a transnational voting scheme is based on the principle of reciprocity. National parliamentarians grant elected representatives of another nation only a place or a seat in their midst if the members of the other parliaments are doing the same. This makes the idea applicable for multilateral and bilateral settings. EU members and non-members could participate in such an attempt to bring politics back closer to the people without falling back to times of competitive nationalism. Together with the EU, uh, with the European Union uh, Institute in Florence, we are using the current debates on national voting districts in the EU, par EU Parliament for propelling our idea to develop a truly transnational voting space with a focus on national parliaments. I have put um, a link to this project on my slides. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm looking forward to the debate. Okay, well, thank you for those uh, presentations uh, very much indeed. I guess what I've heard in terms of common themes is, the, first of all, the difficulty of squaring the, the circle in terms of uh, potential UK demands and the EU's uh, interests. So first point is squaring this difficulty of squaring the circle. But then I guess what I heard in terms of Norway and Switzerland uh, was that uh, with Norway being inside the single European market, it takes a, a hit, it has a cost in terms of uh, democracy and sovereignty at the national level. And then in terms of Switzerland, what I heard uh, was that uh, bilateralism uh, doesn't prevent uh, the dependency of the Swiss government on, in particular, multinational corporations, uh, multinational uh, firms. So either way what I was hearing was that inside the single market there's a, a lack of democracy. Outside the single market, in terms of bilateralism, bilateralism there's a problem of uh, people's voice and the autonomy uh, therein. We have a number of uh, themes to uh, pursue. 
Uh, let me now turn to the audience for uh, questions. We have colleagues with microphones, so if you could simply put up your hand if you want to uh, make a contribution and just tell us who you are and then the question, please. Can we take the gentleman over here, first of all, please? I, uh, is that one? Yeah. yeah. Um, so my name's Josh. I'm a former LSE student uh, now working. I was wondering if we could talk a bit about the possibility of the UK following the EEA model, that is to say um, what was referred to as the Norwegian model earlier on. Um, obviously, getting over the, the, the many problems this might have in British politics, I was wondering uh, how this might play uh, not only with the EU member states that would have to agree to rejoining the EEA, but also with Norway, who... I, I gather quite enjoys its position as um, the largest body within the AFTA members. Okay, can we, take, can we take, collect a few uh, questions? Uh, other questions, please. Uh, could we take the gentleman right at the back? Hello, my name is Jacob van der Beter. I study law at LSE. I was wondering uh, what the impact of these different models is on the Irish border question. Uh, because they all seem r rather difficult, uh, or in my eyes, it seems rather difficult to combine any of these models with the, with the Irish okay. border. Good, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Other uh, questions? Uh, everybody upstairs at the moment. The uh, gentleman here. Hi, thank you. I'm sorry I might have come in late, but I just wonder if the tax haven model, that means also the Singapore model, namely... Uh, unilaterally abolish all the uh, import tariffs or stuff like that has been discussed. Thank you. Okay, good, thank you. Um, I don't know who wants to uh, respond uh, first, but I, perhaps, Eric, um, what do you think Norway's reaction would be for the UK applying to join the European Economic Area? Yeah, yeah, Norway would, would, would uh, say, of course, uh, yes, you are a good... Uh, you are a, good old friend and uh, we owe you a lot so uh, of course we cannot say no but they would not they would not like it a <laughs> 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 problem is basically that that uh, that uh, there is a you must change the agreement that's one one thing and uh, and uh, and there is a different uh, um, what is a different uh, structure in, in Business and production, and so so it is very very different in this country. So you have to. So I don't, I'm not sure that in, in in what how it is set up now we will fit very well. For example, this uh, agriculture outside of this agreement, but I'm sure I will think that the British will very much like the agriculture to be part of it. So so, uh, you know that is why we have the agreement. It is for being able to subsidize the farmers. So so and in, uh, so I don't know if you are so fond of the, fond of that in. Uh, in the UK, or do it yourself. Better to get others to do it. So I think you will be a part of. I think you would like to be part of the agriculture, agriculture policy. But I think when you come to the Irish border, that would be a good. Uh, that would not be a, not be a problem. We we have a, um, we have we have a long uh, border with uh, with with Sweden, and it's completely open. There is nothing, so uh, no hindrances. So so I think the border problem, in a sense, could be uh, could be solved by by that model. On the top of my head, I haven't thought about it, but, but as, as, as I see it now, I think the border problem could be solved. But I think there is a, something with the production and, and, and services and how things are set up that is so different. And the problem is that 
You see, Norway is, is, is nodding, nodding and saying yes to all these agreements, but do you think the British would say yes to everything without, having a, without opposing what is coming? So, so that is, and that is a, the, the difficult thing for Norway. They are afraid that this arrangement would be, uh, could, be, uh, could be ruined or be abolished by, by having the British in because they would not, uh, they, they would not be an easy, easy partner in the negotiations with the, the, the EU. Okay. Joachim, do you want to respond to the points about borders, whether, whether you think uh, the Irish border could be uh, solved by using models elsewhere? To be honest, um, I have no uh, lesson from the Swiss case for this. I think the uh, Liechtenstein yeah. model yeah. might be uh, closer okay. to that uh, than the Swiss in general. Yeah. I would agree with Eric that the EEA, the UK in the EEA together with Ireland, I mean the UK is in the EEA now, but it's in the EU pillar. I would basically switch the pillar to the EFTA pillar, but the government has ruled this out. So there was a, another option would be for the uh, Northern Ireland uh, the custom, to stay in the customs union, but that's also something that seems to be politically impossible, so that you know, the border would be in, in the Irish Sea basically and not between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. But uh, for political reasons, that seems to be a no-go as well. And the problem I see, if you take Liechtenstein as a precedent, as I, I tried to say, it's not really a precedent because it's so small. And there's another big difference that the gap has been narrowing over time. I mean, we've had this now since 25 years or whatever. Um, and the gap between the Swiss rules and the E. EU rules that we both apply for certain products you know, has become smaller and smaller. There's convergence because Switzerland is following this policy of autonomous adaptation uh, and it is you know, negotiating a lot of bilateral agreements where it's also getting closer to the EU rules. Whereas in the Irish case, I think I might, I'm afraid it might go the opposite way. So it's all about how to avoid divergence. Because if you want to take back control and have your own rules, it means you're going in a different direction from the EU. So the gap will be widening, and I think that's one of the issues why this might not work, uh, to have this mar parallel marketability of goods. And it's only for goods, you know? What about services and all the other stuff? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to respond to the points about uh, the Singapore model? The Singapore? Singapore? The oh, the, yeah. Uh, was it tax heaven or just abolishing yeah. all the tariffs? Both. Both. <laughs> I, uh, well, for the tax heaven, I think the UK, if it would go down, that uh, it would have heavy problems with the OECD and the EU <laughs> to start with. <laughs> and for tariffs, I mean, well, you know, I don't, well, personally, I don't think it's a good idea because you've got nothing to negotiate. I mean, uh, nobody, if you have, nobody wants to negotiate with you if they have free access anyway. But how do you get free access to their market? Okay. <laughs> Other comments, questions? Can we take the gentleman in the middle here, please? There's a question about um, the very basics of Brexit. UK has invoked the Article 50, and a plain reading of Article 50 says that we cannot uh, rejoin the EU, but uh, we have to apply once again afresh to rejoin the EU. Mm. We hear both sides of, uh, both from the continent and from the United Kingdom, the voices saying that, no, no, we can uh, definitely 
revoke our invocation of the Article 50 and join straight away. You know, if there is a hard Brexit, nobody agrees to any of these models that there is a way out. I've heard even Vince Cable say that today's article, that there's a 20% chance that we'll rejoin the EU. Is there any option or does the uh, panel have a definitive answer on this, whether we can rejoin the EU on the last day or whether you have to apply refresh on fresh terms and conditions to join the EU? Okay, good, thanks. thanks. Other points, other uh, questions? Uh, could we take the gentleman here and then... Um, Professor Erickson made a, um, a, a very strong argument for it being an economic success but a political tragedy to have the EEA arrangement. Uh, he also made the observation that no one listened to his argument ahead of the referendum. Um, my observation would be that actually during the referendum the Remain campaign did argue that to be an EEA rather than, the, than a European Union member was daft and the net effect was that, uh, that after the um, uh, referendum, people assumed that the EEA had therefore been voted against as well, and that that is a, a, a real problem in terms of finding a median voter compromise um, mm. now. But uh, my question was, if, if um, being in the EEA is an economic success but a political disaster, what is not being in either the EU or the EEA? Is it an economic and political disaster? <laughs> in other words... Um, uh, to, to reframe the question slightly, um, isn't it the case that you always lack sovereignty as a small country in doing trade agreements with big countries? And if we aren't a demandeur of the EU's rules, won't we just be a demandeur of the US rules? Thank you very much. Uh, there's a gentleman. Yes, could we take the gentleman at the back, please? Thank you. Uh, David Williamson, uh, retired. <laughs> It's quite clear that the, the, the speakers this, this, uh, this evening have, have been observing what's been going on in the UK over the last year or so. Given, given, given the, the, the government's position on all its red lines, which, which quite clearly they're having to adopt because of divisions within their own part, the, the governing party, I can't see how they could even contemplate joining the EA because once again there's going to be issues about movement of people there's going to be issues about accepting decisions of the ECJ which in any case I think people voting in the referendum were getting totally confused with the ECHR which is the which is which is the court which gets most of the bashing in the press rather than the ECJ so so and and and, and so if we if we get in a situation where where whereby it looks like no agreement is going to be reached, which I think is what the outcome is going to be, I think that the only thing I, I would pin my hopes on is that, uh, that given faced with that that cliff edge, people yeah. might it, if if it's feasible to 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 to, to withdraw Article Fifty. Okay, thanks. Uh, Possibly uh, in the centre here, please. Thanks. Um, there was a quite a Just good say slide. Who you are, please. Yeah, sorry, my name's Errol. I used to be a UCL student. Um, there was a slide at the very beginning um, where we were talking about a lot of the, the existing arrangements being in flux. 
And kind of a lot of the arguments that we're having now are kind of squaring those red lines that the UK have against those red lines that the EU have. And I guess my question is, maybe those red lines on the EU side should may be up for flux too. I mean, we're, in an, we're quite in, an, in an era of quite a lot of change. And an institution that's 40 years old does need to renew. And that doesn't mean tinker on the edges. You've got issues, I think, relating to migration across the EU. You've probably got other concerns that people have. And the truth is, there's a real lack of democratic um, referendum going on in the EU. So we don't actually know how people feel about whether we actually want closer political integration as well as economic one. I take the view personally that free and fair trade on its own, irrespective of all the other things, is the thing that we should be trying to look for and to achieve. Um, and I just wonder whether you think those red lines are essentially in stone. Okay, good, thank you. Uh, there's a question over here, I think. Uh, yes, could you take the gentleman here? Last question. Uh, Rick Bennett, retired. Um, this question relates to, I think, a couple of questions ago. The, the uh, uh, Tory government seems to have boxed itself into the corner in terms of negotiation because one of the, red, the two of the red lines are they're not going to uh, continue being a member of the single market and the customs union. So they've already screened off a significant number of um, options. They, they, they have restricted their freedom in order to please the, uh, appease the um, extremist uh, Brexiteers. I just wondered what the panel thought of that negotiating stance. Okay. Okay. Um, I think, Linda, do you want to start with uh, any of those questions? Okay. Can, first of all, can we revoke Article 50 and just go back to the future? That's a difficult <laughs> question. Yeah, it's food for lawyers. Uh, I mean... Yes, you would have to reapply, and there are a lot of people who think it's irreversible, but that means once you, know, you get there, I'm not sure if a change of mind before you get there could politically still be feasible. I mean, and I think it's a bit unlikely with the current government to say sorry. Uh, True, but if... The, um, <laughs> it's a new government. You no longer want... W w one assumes that the EU27 uh, might actually forego the pleasure of continued Brexit negotiations uh, on the basis of London saying, let's call the whole thing off and go back. Well, there's certainly, I mean, nobody wants the UK to leave, really. I mean, uh, but it's a political question, but there are also lawyers that have different opinions on that, you know, so, because it's the first time, and this article just came in with the Lisbon Treaty, there's no precedent, there's nothing. I mean, it's, it's a bit up in the air, in my view. Uh, but maybe on the, uh, on the red lines, oh. uh, and whether the EU might become a bit more flexible on its own red lines, uh, not <laughs> and the UK government maybe on its red lines too, uh, I think th that immigration is one point, and the other point is uh, increasing differentiation within the EU, what we call internal differentiation. I mean, the UK itself had a lot of opt-outs and special treatments during its membership, Denmark and in other countries uh, partly as well. So one way might be, there's, well, there's a, a thing called external differentiation as well, so there might be more flexibility in the different models. Uh, but 
the real red lines I see is that the autonomy of the EU legal order and decision making, I think that's a no-go that the EU would ever, either you're a member of the club or you're not, and if you're not a member of the club, you can't sit at the table and vote. Now, in the EA, um, <laughs> FTA experts can go to certain committees, but they have no right to vote, but they can give input that's decision shaping, but they can't go any further, so it's the very first stage of a, of a commission proposal that can, then becomes eventually a legal act. Uh, and uh, I think that's as good as it gets. But then the other, where there is flexibility is the balance of uh, benefits and obligations. That's up to negotiations. And you know, for instance, people always say, oh, you know, the UK, if, you want, if the UK wants to have large access to the single market, it has to swallow the free movement of persons. There's no legal reason for that, really. It's a political question. I mean, Turkey is in the customs union, has no free movement of persons. Uh, okay, it has a very much more limited access to the single market. But in that case, the, the EU did not want Turkish labor come to its market, you know. Whereas in the Swiss case, uh, with this guillotine clause um, that Joachim was also referring to in the, in the first package of bilateral agreements, the EU wanted to have free movement of persons in, the Swiss did not. But, you know, the argument was if you want to have access to our market, you know, you have to accept. And also in the second round of bilaterals, you know, the, the Swiss wanted to participate in Schengen, and you said, well, then we want to have a deal on taxation. It's a give and take, so, but that's a political issue. It's a, so this balance of benefits and obligations where you draw the line that you have to negotiate, but... Okay. It depends also on the con who is negotiating. I mean, f for the UK, not having free movement of person with a large access to the single market, I think it's not realistic. But. Okay. Eric, can I ask you, uh, Richard's question specifically to, uh, on the point that uh, in the referendum, uh, one interpretation is that uh, people yeah, did yeah. vote yeah, against yeah. the uh, European Economic Area notion yeah. and uh, would being outside... What constitutes political economic disaster? Yeah, the pro uh, um, I'm very well, very well of this. I could have uh, referred to David Cameron also. There is no Norway option, as, as, as he, he, he said. So we read that out. Yes, and my, uh, my, my, it's two things. When he wrote his book, it was not only to say something about the EEA agreement, but all the, the other agreements also, and, and to use this, 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 uh, this Swiss contradiction in terms, autonome nachvollzug. What does that tell you? It is a contradiction in terms. You, you see, so, 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 so it's not much autonomy in, in adaptation. So, so this is what we try to do, a kind of, this is kind of structured analysis of it. But, but, but the, 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 the point about the EAA agreement is that you should, you should learn what is, what is at stake here. This is one thing. And the other thing is that this may be, if things come to the worst. What should you do if everything collapses? For, because this is what the EU has on, on the table. This is what they offer you. This is uh, the EAA agreement because this is simple, non-bureaucratic, and, uh, and a, 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 uh, it's kind of a blueprint for, 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 the, the for states that would not like to be a member but, but have access to the market. So, 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 uh, so uh, I don't know. But uh, and with regard to this uh, Article 50, of course, you could in due time apply on on on, on you, but uh, but uh, the best thing would of course be to just to uh, to withdraw it before before the two years has has expired, because then you uh, everything would be as before. But uh, but uh, I'm um, I, um, 
um, I am in a way with uh, this analysis is also uh, uh, what happens. It is not, uh, this thing about yeah, we will always a small country will always be uh, be uh, uh, what is it uh, dominated by others. Yeah, yeah, this is a limit. It's a limit to everything. And I know, I'm not sure that Denmark and Sweden will say this, and, 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 and Finland will, will say this by being a member. They are small countries. I'm not so sure when you see what they have managed to do in the, in the, uh, the EU also and, and have the, their way. So, so I, I don't buy that one. And, 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 and the problem with Europe after the Second World War was that there should not be this kind of dominance. Big powers should, uh, the imperial is over. So imperium is, uh, so you know, this was not only Germany, but this was also the end of colon colonization and, ev and everything. It was a new order established here. And that, is, that order is established in the, in the legal uh, legal documents that we have uh, subscribed to. So, and what is what is the what is the alternative to a legalistic approach? You cannot, you, we cannot, we cannot have an alternative because the alternative is something that we do not like. We like things to, or, or should not be. We should, things should go through due process, and there should be should should be a democracy in the in the end here. And everything else is is not democracy. Okay. <laughs> Inevitably. So they, they, they are you, I don't know. I don't know. They have a, they have a lot, lot of activities in these countries with regard to policy making in the in the EU, what they participate in and what they try to get through. Think of the ombudsman's or, or, or uh, institution in, in this is Scandinavian words and, and word and that was the Swedish who made it, that through in the in the EU and you could go through a lot of things there you will you will see that. Yes. Okay, I can, uh, there's the point about um, is it sensible as a negotiating strategy for the British government to say up front we're not going to be in the single market we're not going to be in the customs union let's talk about flexibility. <laughs> Well, uh, you bring me in a, in a similar uh, situation like uh, it would be the case if, if, that, uh, if that's, that argument is, uh, is made right from the beginning. No, I don't, uh, I don't think so. Um, but, but I think it's sensible to, to make the argument um, the, the, EU has, the EU has to change uh, in also, uh, not, not just uh, we. That is my, my clearing my conviction. Um, uh, that um, they have to show flexibility to um, existing and maybe f a former non-members, but they have to also to take into account what this means. Um, and for me, it's not just, just the Brits or the majority of the Brits uh, who uh, are show some skepticism against uh, this current um, and. Well, you know that I'm, I, I'm German, and so I, I, I have this. Uh, I have this. Uh, in principle, in Switzerland, I'm arguing for more legalistic rule. Yeah, yeah. but in, in 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 Europe and in other parts of the world, no, there is an alternative to uh, a very legalistic understanding of democracy. It's really the uh, Swiss and British uh, uh, ways to, to think about it. And also, I um, I think that um, uh, in terms of uh, freedom of movement. Um, if the EU sticks to its very, very principled line of argumentation in this respect, I promise that they will have a lot of problems in the, in the, next, in the following decades. I should, uh, for me it's clear, they have to, to listen closer to the people. Um, and um, of course I'm not saying shut down the, 
the doors and so on. Of course, not in, in this, Swiss, in this uh, hardcore way, but we have to think about ways of taking uh, the fears from the people and um, the freedom of movement uh, comes that allows big waves of migra uh, migration is an issue that we cannot ignore and that the EU should not ignore and that uh, should uh, um, work towards pragmatic, pragmatic, more pragmatic ways uh, and they can show that in the dealing with the, uh, the British. Okay, I guess, though, that uh, there's an issue about um, the time span, that uh, you might make an argument to say that the EU has got to change, uh, but the UK has got to negotiate within two years, and, or 18 months now, whatever it is, and uh, will the EU uh, find itself on some kind of road to Damascus in the next 18 months? Uh, or stick with its pre-established uh, models. Anyways, uh, Siglinda, you wanted to add? Uh, I think one thing we already learned about this Article 50 applied for the first time is that two years are definitely not enough to negotiate anything. I mean, it wouldn't, not for the UK, not for any other countries that would want to leave the European Union, but it was actually drafted by a Brit. <laughs> so that's the irony of it. But, but what also strikes me a little bit is that now there's talk about a two-year transition period I'm not sure, you know, even after uh, 2019. And the model, if you like, that the UK seems to have in mind is more like the Turkish model. So stay in the customs union for those two years, though, because it gives some time to negotiate own trade, trade agreements and so on, but have no vote and be worse off than in the EA or even in the Swiss case. So having absolutely no position during those two years, is that correct? We will see. I guess, therefore, the conclusion of the discussion is that um, we shouldn't necessarily rush to emulate Norway. There's problems with the Swiss model. Uh, the future may be Turkey. <laughs> Let's talk Turkey. Okay. We are out of time, but uh, can you please join me in thanking our panel? <laughs>